from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks, the comic book interviews. My guest today is Leah Moore. Leah is the daughter of Alan Moore, who is known for such titles as V for Vendetta, The Killing Joke, Swamp Thing, and From Hell. She has written several comic series with her husband, John Repion, including The Trial of Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes, The Liverpool Demon. Leah is writing a graphic novel, Morrison Hotel, a celebration of the Doors album by the same name. The book is due out in October. The anthology is written in collaboration with the surviving members of the Doors, Robbie Krieger and John Densmore. Artists from around the world include Colleen Doran, Marguerite Savage, and more. Leah describes her reaction as a teenager in the early 90s, listening to the Doors music she discovered among her parents' vinyl record collection. Co-founding member of the Doors, Ray Manzarek, once said, Jim Morrison wasn't a showman, he was a shaman. Leah Moore describes what made Jim Morrison and the Doors distinct among rock bands of the 1960s and how they were at the forefront of the decade's social and cultural revolution. We also talk about how the album Morrison Hotel was a departure from their previous album, The Soft Parade. Morrison Hotel has returned to their earlier roots as a blues rock band playing at clubs such as the Whiskey A Go-Go. Leah explains how she's taking great pains to not simply translate the lyrics of each song on the album into a story. Within the graphic novel will also be stories that provide historical context by illustrating struggles that took place in our nation while Morrison Hotel was being written and recorded. And as I conclude my interview, I kick back with the creator and ask Leah about her favorite birthday, beverage of choice, and if she could, the one question she would ask Jim Morrison. So please join me in welcoming Leah Moore, here now on Creator Talks. Leah, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, nice to be here. When did you first discover the Doors music? I think 15 or 16, something like that, and maybe even younger, I think, and flipping through my mum and dad's vinyls, as you do when you get a little bit older and you're like, is there anything decent in here? What's good? And I think I must have found the Doors and stolen it immediately and uh, listened to that. But my mum and dad listened to tons of different music, but The Doors was one that I listened to it and I was like, this is mine. You're not allowed to like this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is too cool. It sounds totally timeless. So even in, you know, 1993 or whenever it was, I just got the ambiance and the, the vibe of it immediately. And the fact that Jim Morrison was ridiculously pretty didn't hurt, obviously. It just slotted in. I was like a little grunge kind of teen so I was into like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that but the doors just slotted right in the middle of that I was like this is what I need for my teen angst this is like <laughs> this, is, this is necessary now which albums did they have which one did you play a lot I think I had the doors on vinyl and then I had LA Woman I managed to catch up with some of them on CD I think most of them was either like bits and pieces that people did me on tapes like <laughs> it was a real hodgepodge of like I think I had the Lost Boys soundtrack with the Echo and the Bunnyman cover and I was like oh my god this is amazing and um, I ended up with kind of a a real mixture I've still got all my cassettes in the loft and I'm trying to work out if I can hold them all down and sort through them I first heard the doors it was back in I think it was 81 and everything that was the 60s became hip again you know everybody was listening to a lot of 60s music back in the 80s but I went to see a movie called American Pop. 
and it was an animated film about the history of rock music in America. And there was a segment where they played People Are Strange. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange. When you're strange, when you're and I was like, strange. that is incredible. I've never heard anything like that with the jazz-type sounding piano and Morrison's vocals. It's just incredible when he was on. He was great. His deep vocals and smooth. It was unlike anything I'd heard in rock. So that's when I first heard The Doors. And then, of course, I had to go out and buy greatest hits and compilation albums and I didn't have any of the individual ones yet but I just dove right in and then I became a huge fan from that point on. Their sound is kind of unique in that it's really slinky and polished in places and at other times it is so heavy and like gnarly and strange and I think it's the interplay between those two kind of like vibes that you get from it. They walk a really strange like a really unique singular line i think and i think that's the appeal it's sort of slinky and sexy but then it's just raw and weird and there isn't another band that i can think of that does any of the same stuff when you listen to it they are the closest thing to jazz and rock i mean sometimes like you said it'll be very hard or it'll be very bluesy and other times they'll just improvise on stage when they did live performances maybe part of that was because of jim because he didn't know what he was going to do or how he was feeling that day but they could just go into a break with the guitar and the keyboards and jim too would vamp on stage so it was just amazing how they could do this he was a genius but he was also unpredictable due to his heavy drinking and drug use so it's kind of a shame someone that talented we lost so soon Please share some of your knowledge about Jim Morrison, both his genius and some of the demons that he battled, how it made it difficult for him at times to perform. I've always known that he had issues with drink and drugs. And that when I was a teenager, then he's like, oh, my God, he's this kind of tormented icon. He was sort of battling demons. And, you know, when you're 16, 17, you're like, oh, my God, I am also battling demons. And what demons do you have? But the more I've dove into this. I really think he was truly trying to get somewhere else. I think he was really trying to achieve a kind of a different state of consciousness. And I know that you know there's a lot of people you could say that about from that time. But I think the mixture of his pushing into his poetry and his extensive reading, you know, his reading of the French philosophers and the poets, I think he genuinely seems to sort of be on a journey of discovery. As much as he seems to be like having a lot of fun while he's doing some parts of it, I definitely get the impression that you know there's a lot of rock bands that threw televisions out of windows and girls and drugs and whatever and it should just read as like oh well you know he liked a rock star life but he doesn't seem to have liked that I think he, he liked where that took him in a way it's strange when you watch footage of him he's so intense sort of the way that he's looking at everything I really feel like the reason he got so high or so drunk or so whatever is to experience the world from that different place I think that's why he was able to do his improvisation and why he had his whole kind of shamanic aspect to his 
performances where he was trying to take himself to a new like a different level and he was trying to take the audience with them I mean obviously where it led him it's really sad that he ended up dying and everything so young but I definitely think that he was on his own mission I've been digging into his kind of earlier life and it seems like it's not just something that he kind of flippantly oh yeah being in a band that'd be quite cool and then like a persona was invented it feels really like from what I've been reading that this was the gym that everybody knew right from when he was quite small you know the people that he knew in high school would say that he would be kind of uh, provocative and do sort of pranks the same kind of things that he would do on stage or the like the way that he spoke on stage it definitely that was him yeah he wasn't so much putting on a show he was one with the music and he was just connecting to it and he was in his own head and just kind of expressing that he wasn't really aware of the audience it seemed to me you know like he was just with the band with the flow he wasn't putting anything on there was not a gym on stage and gym off stage it was gym and that's how he was it definitely wasn't here's the doors and we hope you enjoy it and go and buy a t-shirt in the lobby kind of it wasn't it, you, do you know what <laughs> no. i mean right i think that's what makes it so unique as well because you know there's a lot of bands where you think like oh they're instrumentally experimental or their lyrics are interesting you know when i was 17 i was very much like jim morrison and those other guys who make nice music, but, you know, like, <laughs> when mm -hmm. you're 17, then the emphasis is on the, the pretty guy. But I definitely, the more I've been listening to them, the musicianship of the other guys is unbelievable. Like, the guitar playing, the slide guitar playing that Robbie Craig, it's unbelievable. And I think it's the fact that John Densmore and Ray Manzrek and Robbie Craig, they're such adept musicians. Robbie's sort of flamenco. You know, his fingers are so fast and he can put in the kind of complexity of flamenco and John Densmore's his jazz drums or his brushwork it's the ability of the three of them to be able to riff on things they can sort of playfully improvise along with Jim and I think that was what really made it if they just did standard blues bars if that was it I don't think they would have been nearly so interesting but the fact that they had that as the base but then they could pile all this kind of jazz and flamenco complexity on the top of it and then the psychedelic swirling organs and piano and stuff on the top of that I think it's really interesting their music was just as complex his kind of out there lyrics and ideas and I think it's the combination of all of that Robbie Krieger did the lyrics to half of it anyway they're sort of a perfect combination it's amazing how much music they made how much sound they filled on each track with just the four of them especially up until like soft parade it was the four of them and Ray he was playing the bass with one hand on his keyboard and he was playing the other lines with the other hand so he was actually playing the bass notes until they had a bass player later in studio when they did albums like Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman. Yeah, he used to have a, is it a Vox Continental. He used to play that because it had enough room on the top of it for him to stand the little bass keyboard on. When you hear the bass playing on the studio ones where it's actually a real bass and then you see them in concert. I remember I saw an interview with Don Densmore saying that the fact they didn't have a bass player because the bass player usually takes up all of the the space in the, the performance between the guitar and the drums and that. John Densmore said basically that there was loads more room for him to 
play with it and fill and I think that he had a much larger kind of presence in the live performances as a result I can't believe that Ray was just like oh it's fine we'll we don't need a bass player I'll just do bass as well okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah a couple of stories about Jim that I had heard and I also read their book called No One Gets Out Alive. Jim was having a bad trip and they were going to do a show at the Whiskey A Go-Go and this is before they became big. This is when they were still on the road and playing live at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And he was tripping and they didn't know where he was before this gig they had to play that night. And Ray goes to his room and I think he was with uh, the drummer as well. And Jim's under the bed and he won't come out. And they're like, come on, Jim, come on out. It's okay. Because he was freaking out. And they finally got him out. And the story goes that he opened the show with a closer, the end. And the owner was Catholic. And he didn't like that song because there's a lot of uh, Oedipal stuff in there. And uh, it almost ended their career. (laughs) But fortunately, they went on to become very successful. Another story about Jim, and this one breaks my heart. He was gifted a 67 Shelby GT500. I'm a big Mustang fan. And when I heard that he had that car and then he wrapped it around a tree. (laughs) Oh my God. And then he just walked away from it. That was a thing of his, of not just being happy to drive a very nice car and enjoy it, but actually push it to the limit and go like, you know, what happens if I drive without the lights on? What if I drive when I'm drunk? He never wanted the kind of vanilla experience of anything, whatever it was. It's terrifying. And you just think like, in in a way, it's astonishing that he got to 27 because the risk taking that was involved. I know that there was um, the stories about him balancing along the edges of things all the time so he would quite often walk along the edge of a balcony or a a roof or something and and he would appear to fall off it and would catch himself with one hand at the last second and everybody that he was with would obviously go oh my god and then he'd climb back up and be laughing and when he was in high school he did it if he was out with people drinking and he liked people not exactly just to be on edge but I think he liked people to not know what was going to happen next you know you can see a lot of that in his performances he didn't just want his audience to sort of be comfortably sitting and tapping their feet to the (laughs) oh I'm enjoying this Doors concert I think that's where he got into trouble basically was just that he wanted to confront them he wanted to push the performance and he wanted to make it into not just a rock concert but like an experience a shared experience they'd be really engaged in and i think that that's where they're kind of inciting the crowd in miami and he's inciting the crowd to come up on stage and do whatever and turn to your neighbor and, and love them and i think that he was really into the idea that you could from a position of being with a, in a band or you could get people to feel different things and think different things and have experiences. And he wanted to give people that kind of thrill or excitement or the strangeness or whatever it was. It was something different. Not only did he surprise people as a performer on stage, but where the direction of the music went also surprised people. And after the soft parade, which wasn't too well received critically, even though there's some great songs on it. And it was much more experimental with strings and horns. And that was also 68. So a lot of bands were doing that. But then he came back and this was a real comeback for him with Morrison Hotel. And that's when he started delving into more of the blues type sound. He's just started to experiment with it. And he'd do a lot more of it with LA Woman. But this is where he started experimenting with the blues. And do you think that 
was a reflection of how he felt at the time? Do you think he was becoming more despondent with things or more unsettled and impatient with things in terms of producing music and wanting to do something else? From what I've been reading, I think it feels more after the soft parade that they were a bit disillusioned with the size and scale of the studio sound. The strings and horns, it feels like a sort of luxurious extra layer to place on the music and like, oh, it sounds so rich, it sounds so sort of full. But I think after that album, I think that they really wanted to kind of pair it back. To be honest, initially, back in the start of their career, when they were like the house band at the Whiskey, then it was the fact that they were such a good kind of basic rhythm and blues. They were a good driving bar band, basically. They could sit there and, you know, they used to play the hullabaloo. They played really good, solid rhythm and blues. And I think that it was kind of why don't we go back to that? Why don't we do what we do best? We can do it. A lot of bands can do it, but they could do it standing on their head. They could hold the stage at the whiskey or or anywhere just for hours on end without even seeming like it was an effort. With Morrison Hotel, I think what they wanted to do was return to their roots and really give like a masterclass of just making great rock music it really stands out morrison hotel as like it's got absolute bangers they're so danceable they're so kind of immediate and i think that you can really hear the energy in them i mean i know that jim was probably not as on it as he was in the earlier albums the whole band seemed to have a lot of energy again the performances on the album i think they were all performed pretty much as a whole band as well so it wasn't kind of bringing in loads of different multi-tracks like with the soft parade it was getting the um, studio and go I mean I think there was a few takes obviously you get the feeling from listening to it that it was a lot more fun for them to put together and it was obviously it was a lot faster than soft parade and a lot it was recorded pretty fast and mixed pretty fast and they're such a good band that can do all kinds of different things, different styles and different music. And I think for Morrison Hotel, they were just like, this is it. We're a really good rock band. We're a really high class kind of bluesy bar band. And they're showing off. They're saying, like, you might have written us off. I mean, Soft Parade was so loungy and so sort of swaggery and all. I think people kind of thought, these guys are supposed to be edgy. How can violins be edgy? <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Wishful crystal water covers everything in blue. Cool and water, wishful, sinful. Our love is beautiful to see. I know where I would like to be. Right. Morrison Hotel was less of a kind of velour tuxedo and a nice soft kind of cocktail lounge and more of a spit and sawdust backroom bar kind of thing. Come on. I really want you to know. 
it's definitely stripped back from the Saw Parade. It's almost like what the Beatles did when they had Sgt. Pepper. And then it's like, okay, enough of that. Let's get back to rock and roll. Let's get back to the basics. Let's get really creative and not have a whole lot of uh, extra tracks layer on top. And then it did the White Album. And with Morrison Hotel, I mean, you can really hear there's a whole range of music from the great Roadhouse Blues to even earlier sounding songs. I believe they wrote them in 66, Waiting for the Sun in Indian Summer. It's a great representation of the music, and it's very solid. One of the things I heard, though, was listening to some of the takes of Roadhouse Blues, and it seemed like it was really difficult to get through that with Jim. I had listened to that those takes one time. That's enough, because <laughs> it was ruining it for me. The final product sounds great, but getting there was tough. No, do you know what? I've been listening to those takes. I know exactly the ones you mean. Basically, writing this book, I've been sat listening to the album over and over and over again for it's a few months now that I've been working on it and each story I'm doing is based on one track at a time so I'm listening to that one over and over again and I've just finished the Roadhouse Blues one I love the fact that they're kind of getting g'd up to do the next one. Oh no no you're great guys you're great come on you know we can do this it gives you an insight into the fact that they're not just kind of these perfect one take like oh my god they're amazing they just they're just geniuses and they just do it they're really working at it they're working all four of them are working at it and the, you know the engineers I think that Jim definitely from the sound of it he was almost having too much fun he's just like into some kind of groove of his own and they're like can you just sing the song, please? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think definitely you can hear that frustration of, okay, maybe a bit less of the crazy, but we've got the energy going the right direction. So I like the insight you get with those outtakes. I think it's fascinating. I think they're more human from that. You know what I mean? You can hear the kind of, it's not just the sort of high concept doors. You've got the four guys sitting around going, we've got this studio, let's get this done and then go and have something to eat. And I enjoy that stuff almost more. It's very easy with a band as big and as sprawly as The Doors and their reputation precedes them so massively and everybody's got a kind of a hair-raising story about it, something that happened. or And I just think at the end of the day, the way that the four of them got on and the way that they had to keep pushing even when it was difficult and even when you know the tour had been cancelled and they were expecting a big load of gigs and money and it had all gone wrong and I just think that for them to get to the end of 1969 and pull Morrison Hotel out of the bag is nothing short of miraculous after all their big stadium all the sort of big concert halls had cancelled them you know that they'd been expecting to ride the crest of this tour for the rest of the year on soft parade and for it to be a big best-selling thing and it to be amazing and then just to go from that to oh we've got no tour nobody's buying the album we're not getting the radio play they could have been forgiven for just kind of going would you know what (laughs) i'm out of here kind of thing this isn't working but they pulled it together. And I think it's just like a sign of their professionalism and their work ethic. I mean, all four of them. And I include Jim in that because, to be honest, for all that he was kind of this chaotic Dionysian shaman guy, he genuinely put the hours in regardless of what condition he was in during those hours. He really he did do it. He bought it. So, no, I think Morrison Hotel is almost a miracle in a way that they managed to put out something so alive and so vibrant and such a kind of technically solid 
and enjoyable album after what must have been one of the hardest years of their careers. It's amazing. In your graphic novel, Morrison Hotel, this is celebrating 50 years since the release of Morrison Hotel. And your stories, you say, are going to be about each of the songs? Yeah, I was asked to do the graphic novel and I wasn't sure at first what kind of a attack to take with it because I think it's sometimes hard. When you're doing a book about music, it's sometimes tempting to just kind of take the lyrics completely literally and just do pictures of the lyrics with comics. It's so tempting to do a picture of that and a picture of that. And But I thought with Morrison Hotel, because it came out at the end of 1969, I think what we all really wanted to do was to put as much of 1969 as we could into the book so that then the lyrics and the Doors kind of performances that are in it, they're in context of the times and the stuff that was happening around them. And also when you're listening to it, you're given historical layers and the kind of context of the tracks. That is my high concept idea anyway. So I hope I pull it off. Now, how did the surviving members of the Doors, Robbie Krieger, who played guitar, and John Densmore, who played drums, contribute to the graphic novel? Well, I have been very lucky because I've been able to ask questions. I'm getting our, the stories cleared by them. So the idea for the story is kind of approved and then I send them over the script before it gets drawn up. There's a, a lot of back and forth between them and I've been very lucky. I've been given some access to the Doors archives, which is just astonishing as a comic writer and I mean this with no disrespect to any of my previous collaborators but usually when you send a let an email into your editor and say like oh, I'm having some trouble with this can you send me some reference for this or something then your editor's like oh it'll be fine just kind of you know just fudge it with this they're like okay well here's this vast archive of candid pictures of the doors and Jim Morrison in in the early days and all the way through their career and I'm just like Oh, I didn't expect this to be my day job, <laughs> to be sitting in my in my house and being sent large Dropbox folders full of pictures of Jim Morrison. 17-year-old me, she'd be astonished. She really would. <laughs> Did they uh, share anything with you that surprised you about Jim? I think everything I read surprises me about him. Everything I read, because he seems to be an original his motivations, all of the things that drive you through your life. You know, you want kind of a career and money and uh, companionship and relationships and all kinds of things that drive human beings to do what they do. And and with him, everything I learn surprises me. He had the relationship that he had with Pamela Corson and he had all these loads of other different relationships and things that he was interested in, his pursuit of knowledge. He almost sometimes feels like a frustrated professor. How the hell am I ended up being a rock star when actually what I want to do is be sat in some kind of weird archive? He wanted insight and, and knowledge. And some people would say that being Jim Morrison is a weird way of going about that. But <laughs> it was like <laughs> that was all kind of secondary to his own mission. Anybody that writes him off as just kind of a rock star with drink problems or whatever, you know, you're missing about 95% of what made him tick, definitely. The artists on this book, they're from all over the world. Tell me about some of the artists you have working on it. Oh my God, I've got so many. Colleen Duran is doing one of my stories and God bless her. 
I've given her the one that I think is probably going to be the biggest pain in the butt to draw. I've given her the one that's set in the Aquarius Theatre. And it was basically the, when the gigs were all cancelled, they had to set, sort of set up some more gigs. They decided they might record a live album. So they did some shows at the Aquarius Theatre, which obviously had hair playing at it and was all kind of painted. The outside was all beautifully psychedelic. And the inside is like a 1930s supper club or was in its previous incarnations. So poor Colleen has been given the task of faithfully reproducing a psychedelically painted, decorated 1930s supper club with a crowd scene in it. And and I'm sending her all these kind of links and going, oh, this is what it would have looked like when it was a supper club. It had a patent leather ceiling. It had this sort of tiered auditorium where people would be sat around eating. But obviously, I'm writing this script thinking, oh, these are helpful links I can send her. This is helpful extra information to send her. I swear she must be tearing her hair out going like... (laughs) (laughs) Why me, God? It's really overwhelming to be the only writer on what is effectively like a large anthology because normally I've been in loads of anthologies before where I'm me and somebody else are doing a story and that's part of the whole. And now it's the same as that, except I'm working with all of them. It's a lovely position to be in. Sebastian Pires, he's doing Peace Frog, which is fantastic. The story I chose to go with Peace Frog because the lyrics for Peace Frog are quite strange because they were a poem that Jim had just in his notebooks. And it was an old riff that I think that Ray and Robbie had come up with between them, I think. I saw an interview saying that the poem was written about an abortion or a miscarriage. Oh, it was a miscarriage, I think, that Jim's girlfriend had had. That's where the blood on the streets kind of stuff came from in the poem. But then when you hear it, it's very much more about the protests, the riots and, you know, New Haven. And I wanted to give like an example of what was happening in the forces that were at play and what people were protesting about. Indians scattered on Don's highway bleeding. Ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. Blood in the streets in the town of New Haven Blood stains the roofs and the palm trees of Venice Blood in my love in the terrible summer Bloody red sun of fantastic L.A. For Peace Frog, I've done that one about the People's Park in Berkeley campus where the teenagers and the, the students decided to turn an old parking lot into a park And it was just going to be for the neighbourhood use and general people to take their kids to and everything. And they went and built it. Volunteers turned up and all built it. And then the university and the governor, who was Governor Reagan at the time, they basically just booted the students out of the park, destroyed the park, put up a big, massive hurricane fence. And, you know, the police were in there. There was all kinds of people just all of a sudden taking over the park and the students went absolutely balmy about it because, you know, it's a park. How offensive can it be? They had a, a march through the streets. There was tear gas. All the scenes that you have at the moment with the Black Lives Matter protests, they're exactly 
as crazy and violent and it was just about some students making in a park putting in a few trees and things and they cracked heads and ran people down and it was absolutely appalling so I've tried to kind of put in the feeling that there was this kind of hopeful action and movement among the young people that was put down wherever it came up by the right-wing government and people in power. I think for Peace Frog, then, I've tried to get the rioting on the streets. I want to make sure that that you sort of get the feel of California in 1969 as well, because I think that people kind of go, oh, right, that was the hippie movement, you know, the summer of love and flower power and, you know, everybody taking acid. And I think that it was a lot more complicated than that and there was a lot more facets to it. There was political protest, there was the literature and culture was changing there was drugs and there was that whole kind of scene of things but I think that's partly what I'm trying to do with the book is to show the different facets that were at play in the society 50 years later it is still relevant today that's the thing and that's what I keep finding every single story I was thinking this is going to showcase a really nice bit of proper 1969 history and every single one of them I'm like Hmm, that's still happening. <laughs> that's right now. Like the one I'm doing at the moment is the Vietnam story, which I don't think it's not actually one that's from a song. You can't have 1969 and not mention Vietnam. And I think the takeaway of it, I mean, all the young men were potentially about to get packed off to the other side of the world to fight in this war. And I think it's completely mind-boggling to me sitting here cheerfully in 2020 as awful as 2020 is i think that the exact horror of vietnam you can't ever get to the bottom of it it's been one of the most harrowing things to read up about i have to say although 90 percent of reading upon this book has been harrowing (laughs) (laughs) it's been like oh my god what, what am i writing about today oh my god but um the vietnam stuff it's just terrifying the disconnect between ostensibly what it was about and what it was for and actually what the effect that it had and the disjointed communications and it doesn't make sense even by its own internal logic that's the thing that keeps baffling me about it I'm like what was anybody hoping to achieve except for enormous amounts of death it's not a very long story but i'm just trying to kind of paint the picture bring in the environment and history yeah, of the time and, yeah yeah and show that like however deep and scary and strange the doors got They never got as deep and scary and strange as the times. I think that they were a product of their times. The American government was more strange and out there and did more crazy stuff than they ever did. The 60s was radical, but it was only radical because people suddenly went, hang on, we're allowing all of this stuff to be completely commonplace. That's what civil rights is about. As soon as you kind of sit up and go, this isn't acceptable, then all of a sudden you're the person that's sort of rocking the boat kind of thing. But I think obviously it's stuff that needed saying then and it still hasn't finished needing saying now for all that we've moved on. We're still in the same place in a lot of ways. So I'm doing my very best to condense it down. All of these things I'm trying to condense down and and make sure that the takeaway that you get from it is like a little distilled version. I'm trying not to go on. (laughs) I don't want to be like just kind of and 27thly. I want people to enjoy it. I think all of the stories are going to be really fun in their own right. But um, it's quite a task, I have to say. It is. And it's going to fit into roughly 144 pages. Yes which seemed achievable when I started it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's going to be, um, I think the stories are like 
between eight and 14 pages and I'm just having a look now I've done quite a few of them already and I'm still working on the last couple some of them are the hardest ones to do one I've still got to do is um about the Altamont festival they didn't play it but it's one of those kind of moments there's a whole thing where they say all the moments that the 60s died and it's almost like it had come up to this kind of boiling point where it was the most strange and experimental and out there that everything could possibly be. And I think that when you get to Altamont and you see watching Gimme Shelter, this is what happens when you take personal freedom of the individual to the nth degree. You can give a whole big crowd of kids a pile of drink and acid and great music. And it sounds fun. It sounds fantastic. But like <laughs> it's awful though if I'd have been writing this book when I was 19 I would have 100% been feeling like I was one of the kids and now I'm a parent and I'm I've got <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm writing it and I'm going oh this is just ridiculous there isn't even the slightest bit of health and safety what <laughs> did they even have a medical tent what is even going on I'm shaking my head and tutting at <laughs> it's I think it shows you that the freedoms, it was a period of such boiling change and you take out the structures of 1950s society and class structure and the sort of economic structure and everything. I think if you take away all of those supports and you drop out, turn on and tune in and drop out and you get rid of all of that structure, then obviously what you're left with is that everybody has to kind of make up their own way of doing it all. And I think the Altamont particularly it's what happens if you really just let people do whatever and also don't ever have a concert at the bottom of a muddy hill in the middle of a racetrack or what <laughs> oh my god oh my god if we have a list of things that have traumatized me during <laughs> is watching a lot of youtube videos of really awful kind of yeah but hey ho it's exciting to kind of Get in amongst it and pull out these strands that kind of stitch the whole thing together. There is elements that keep cropping up over and over again. And it's really interesting to see how these little kind of threads of ideas or they, they kind of stitch the whole thing together. And you can sort of see how people came out of it sort of changed and with new ideas and new perspectives and it sort of paved the way for so much you know you think about how much the music of that time has changed the face of the planet the people that have come out of that the ways of thinking would we have silicon valley and all the technology and that whole generation and the way that they approached innovation and the way that they approached everything is the seeds of that is in the summer of love and the kind of unrest and the movement of it we only have to wait until October to see this, which isn't that far off, really. In addition to the soft cover, you have a hardback slipcase edition coming out, limited to 5,000 copies with the certificate of authenticity, three prints, and a vinyl remastering by Bruce Botnick of the album. Yes. I mean, this is more kind of pinch me kind of stuff. I think that the vinyl repressing is going to be amazing because I have to say it like I'm not kind of a vinyl 
bore <laughs> but I definitely think that when you hear it there's something magic about actually hearing that kind of analog it's weightier it's meatier isn't it it just feels more I don't know it's got more soul in it definitely than just flicking to it on your track list on your phone but yes um, I can't wait to see it it's going to be absolutely beautiful the art that I've seen for it all I'm so excited I didn't actually did not believe that one day my life and the lives of the doors would in any way converge. I'm looking forward to it. And I have to get a turntable now because I've listened to that album in its original pressing and I got rid of my vinyl, uh, a lot of it, and I have CDs. And the remastering that was done back in 2007 is nothing like the original, just in terms of like Roadhouse Blues you hear a lot more of Jim vamping during it, which is where they say too much, Jim. And at the very end... Let it roll, baby, roll. Let it roll, baby, roll. Let it roll, baby, roll. Let it roll. All night long. They leave in Jim saying Yikes. at the end of the song, which I'm like, what? And it's just, and it's not an extra bonus track. It is the track. It takes something away from it. And I always chuckle when I hear that. So I am looking forward to hearing a remastering of the original. It's amazing. I think that they're so excited about it. The process, the fact that they can play with it again with the new technology we have now, I think it's going to be quite a special thing. It's time for Kicking Back with the Creator, where I ask you, Leah, a few questions about you to know more about you as a person. So, to begin, what do you like to do for recreation? Ah, now, after all this kind of heavy-duty research and stuff, you would think that I would have a load of hobbies. To be honest, all I do for recreation is look after the kids um, <laughs> or try and, like, escape them. But I like to watch all the kind of big box sets you know i like to watch game of thrones and the witcher and all those kind of things that you just relax your brain to watch brain candy it's fun yeah what was your favorite birthday my favorite birthday i think probably my 16th because i got to have a party and my mum had a friend who worked at a theater so there was this little like black box theatre room that they let us have the party in and I was so excited because I got to put like a mix tape on for the music and then we all were dancing about to Nirvana uh, honestly it was like it was a bit like you know the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit is in the school gym we are literally a bunch of 16 year old kids going absolutely nuts to smells like teen spirit and i have to say that was a high point it's really stereotypically 90s of me <laughs> the one thing i've learned is that i am the most 90s person ever so yeah leah what is your beverage of choice in the daytime to relax to relax cider kind of fruity cider margarita you know i'm not gonna say no to a fancy cocktail it'd be rude <laughs> <laughs> Now a hypothetical. You're stuck on a deserted island. You have one book you can read for pleasure. It can be a graphic novel. It can be a book. It could be a collection if it's all related. And this is just for pleasure, for fun, not for survival purposes. What's the one book you want to have with you? That is tricky. Um, one of my favorite books of all time is Catch-22. I love Catch-22. I love the way that it plays with this sort of how you 
see the war and the way that you have to think around the problems that he's going through and everything. I really, uh, I enjoy that. I really as well. I really love House of Leaves, which is amazing, really creepy horror that uses typography. I, I was really amazed the first time I turned the page and there was just one big word across the whole two pages I think using the sort of your medium to its full capacity and I think House of Leaves definitely did that that was creepy and typographically interesting what more could you want back to catch 22 I don't know if you've seen the miniseries on Hulu yes oh that was so good Hugh Laurie and George Clooney he has a comedic side to him that's just hilarious what a great comedy tragedy I really enjoyed that miniseries it's fantastic. I think that is possibly why I wish I could do more of that in this Vietnam story that I'm doing. It's the catch. The fact that everything comes back to the catch. You know, he's flying his missions and he's doing this and he's like, oh, it comes back to the catch. And he's like, well, it is a hell of a catch. And he like, it is. It is a hell of a catch. And everybody around him, I love the just the kind of the machine of the world that he is trapped in and how he can follow all these strange little trajectories. I absolutely adore it. I know that Catch-22 is not known for being like a girl's book in general, but I just adore the humour and the horror. You'll be laughing along and then all of a sudden somebody's been shot in half and mm -hmm. it's so um, powerful, weird stuff. Back to music, which individual or band's music made the biggest impact on you? The biggest impact is probably Jimi Hendrix because that was one of the other albums that I pilfered um, when I got the Doors ones. And I think that Electric Ladyland absolutely blew the top of my head off. With the Doors, you definitely go like, oh my God, these guys are on a different planet. But Jimi Hendrix, it was just like, it was a totally different experience to just listening to music. I couldn't even understand what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> like how is he doing that with his guitar music that takes you somewhere else takes you out of the room that you're in earlier when I said I was 15 I think I must have only been about 13 because I remember sitting and listening and I had my mum's old stereo which was a big stacking system but in a cabinet with mm -hmm. a glass door yep. and I, these big speakers and I was allowed to have that in my room and it was my first stereo so I was like it's got a turntable I'll put a record on and then went and got these vinyl LPs and sat there and blew my own mind. Really. <laughs> it's like, and it's weird because after that, my tastes changed. And obviously, you know, what your friends listen to has an effect. And I still ended up buying a load of really iffy, dreadful music. You know, when you're a teenager and you're like, oh, why have I got that? But I still... I, <laughs> <laughs> when I was 13, I was the coolest 13-year-old. It went downhill after that. <laughs> <laughs> My final question. If you had a chance to speak with Jim Morrison and you can only ask him one question, what would that be? I don't know. Did he find what he was looking for? Did he glimpse it? Did he get there if he achieved what he was so vigorously attempting to get to, I think? But I don't know. It would probably it would probably be something involving margaritas, to be honest, if I'm really honest with myself. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with the like more contemplative. But, yeah, that's what I would like to know is if he got to where he was trying to get and if he achieved his mission. Because they say that when he was discovered in Paris that he was smiling and you don't know what was going on, do you? Morrison Hotel, that's coming out on October 14th, 2020, thereabouts. That'll be a graphic novel. 
through Z2 Comics. You can also get the limited edition set, which includes a remix of the Morrison Hotel LP. Liam Moore, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. After my conversation with Liam Moore, I decided to buy myself an early birthday present and get a turntable. I haven't listened to vinyl in about 30 years. I wish I still had the turntable I bought back in college. It was kind of the adult version of the close and play. You remember those as kids? Close and play, you just pop the 45 in, close the lid, and it plays. Well, that's what I had for adults, for LPs. You close it, linear tracking, direct drive turntable. It was wonderful, but I sold it. I got rid of it. So I purchased a mid-grade one and also went up a couple levels on the cartridge for better sound. And I must say I'm quite pleased with it. Me and the missus will listen to some vinyl after dinner. The big hit right now is listening to Leonard Skinner, but I listen to all kinds of music from Slipknot to Sinatra, Dean Martin to Metallica. And what's really been fun is listening to albums that were recorded in Las Vegas at the now defunct Sands Hotel. Performances by The Rat Pack and another with Frank Sinatra and Count Basie and his orchestra. I never had a chance to see them live, but this is the next best thing, and it really does fill the room. It's like you're there. So the question is, does vinyl sound better than digital? Well, I think digital's still better, because a high-res digital file will have no surface noise, and vinyl just still has those little clicks and pops, although, amazingly, it's a lot less than I expected. It's still a really close experience to listening to a CD. Much better quality than I remember or expected, but it all comes down to the recording. How good is the quality of the recording and the mastering? A high-res file will sound terrible if the mastering was terrible. Same for LPs, same for CDs. One advantage about digital though, vinyl can be a lot more expensive. The discs are more expensive and the equipment to get the same quality sound as digital is more expensive. Well, that's my vinyl talk for this week. Please join me in two weeks for my next guest. Again, the show is out every other Thursday. You can find me on all your favorite podcast catchers and please rate and review on Apple Podcasts if you have not already and share it with a friend. I want to apologize for my voice. I am very dry. The world is burning around me, literally. My friends in Washington, Oregon, and California are going through a terrible time right now with the forest fires, so please keep them in your thoughts. I hope you find a bright spot in your week when you read your comics and have some temporary escape from all the madness. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. (laughs) 